This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Krampus is a creature in German and Austrian folklore who is believed to punish and kidnap naughty children, while good children are rewarded by St. Nicholas. The legend and lore of Krampus is spreading around the globe more and more with each passing year. The name Krampus started popping up more and more the last couple of years in the forms of Krampus festivals, Krampus beers, Krampus t-shirts, and more. But who is Krampus? When did he develop? Why does he look the way he does with his hooked nose, horns, devilish look, and malicious appearance? Is he supposed to be the actual devil? Is he based on stereotypical images of societal outcasts from a certain time in Austria and Germany? Who is he? Why does he exist? This episode focuses on the article, The Devils in the Details, The Krampus Conundrum, published by Sacred Matters Magazine. The author of the piece and my guest is Madison Tarleton, PhD candidate and scholar of medieval Judaism and Christian Europe, anti-Judaism, and anti-Semitism. Madison is studying at the University of Denver and Iliff School of Theology's joint PhD program. And in this conversation, Madison takes me through the development of Krampus, compares and contrasts his image of the mischievous and terrifying appearance of Krampus with the jolly, rotund, and merry imagery of St. Nicholas. Then we consider the stereotypical Jewishness of Krampus and then we explore the history of the anti-Semitism in Europe, stereotypes, and some little-known history around Krampus in general. A link to the article under discussion in this episode can be found in the show notes. You can find Madison Tarleton on Twitter, at Madison Tarleton. It's just her name. A link for her Twitter can be found in the show notes. You can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas or at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. If you found this episode link on Twitter, you may have noticed the excellent Krampus artwork in the episode posting. The artwork on the post is done by the artist Elliot Lang, and you can find his Instagram link in the show notes. So just think, after listening to this episode, when Christmas time rolls around in 2020, You'll be ready to tell the story of Krampus. Enjoy. Madison Tarleton, welcome to Classical Ideas. So it's really great to have you here. I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. Yeah. Um, so I am in sort of the 
beginning of the end stages of um, the first half of my PhD. So I am getting a PhD in religious studies from a joint program actually at the University of Denver and the Iliff School of Theology. Um, it's really great. We get to sort of have access to two institutions, which means two sets of faculty, two sets of um, library resources, and um, two sets of students from both um, the university's uh, grad students and undergrads at um, DU. So I, I'm in my third year, which means I'm in the middle of qualifying exams or comprehensive exams, which means I will likely get to start my dissertation within hopefully the next calendar year once I um, pass my proposal and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I actually work on um, medieval Judaism in Christian Europe and early forms of anti-Judaic and anti-Semitic visual culture and what that really means in terms of trying to create sort of a visual rhetoric of, of better understanding um, how we talk about anti-Judaic artwork and anti-Semitic artwork um, a little bit separately to help better educate people about sort of what was happening in this time period and how we can better apply it to um, current situations, current culture, that kind of thing. Awesome. How did you get involved in academically studying religion in the first place? Like, what's your origin story for how you came down this academic path? Yeah, so I was always really interested in history. I loved um, history. I loved learning about the world um, in different ways, um, you know, what 19th century Europe looked like versus 19th century, you know, Japan, maybe. I really loved that comparative aspect of history. Um, and, and sort of the intermingling of cultural studies that sort of gets tossed in there when you're doing sort of a um, overview history course in maybe high school or something. Um, and I was also really involved in my church growing up and, and still am actively involved in um, a church congregation. But I, I grew up in the South and thankfully I grew up in a really um, loving and relatively liberal home and, and relatively liberal church which gave me a lot of space to explore other religious traditions and really question and critique the one that I was in, which was a really huge ask and a really huge leap for a church community in the South to encourage not only their congregants, but their youth um, to really question what it meant to be a part of a faith community um, and what it meant to be a Christian in ways that weren't necessarily just um, I follow Jesus and, and that's, that's why I'm here. Mm. So there weren't a lot of churches in my city that really made space for um, what I would maybe call skepticism and, and definitely churches that didn't encourage it. So a lot of um, my background in religion um, was, came from my church's willingness to let me ask questions that I began to get really interested in, in different traditions. And I was sort of trying to pick a college major um, and was at one point really interested in like environmental studies and thought I wanted to explore that, which in hindsight, I'm terrible at science. So that would have been sort of a bust. Um, but my love for history and I think my love for both the space that my faith tradition gave me um, and my really, my really big interest in like culture and, and how religion affects culture in many ways, especially growing up in such a religiously hot place like the South um, really led me into getting a religious studies undergraduate degree, which sort of 
snowballed into a master's degree and now this PhD that I'm in. And I really haven't found a program or, or, or classes even that are outside of my discipline that have really been able to, to blend my love of history and religion and culture studies and people in, in the way that religious studies does and the way that religious studies scholars have crafted this field to be a really fruitful place for conversations. How'd you land in Denver? So sort of by luck, I actually applied to Princeton Theological Seminary and the University of Denver. Um, Princeton Theological Seminary was sort of really where I thought I was going to go. I had this plan to get um, a master's of theology and then move into a PhD and, and sort of do it that way. But I really found myself wrestling with um, any limitations that that might might cause for me, which which in hindsight, I have wonderful colleagues who have MDivs and MTSs in my PhD program who are just the most intelligent and wonderful people. Um, and I think that a lot of what I was harboring was sort of still some skepticism about what it meant to be in like a, a seminary. Mm. So I was in my religious studies lounge at College of Charleston one day, I think working on a paper or maybe just sitting on the sofa and we had a bulletin board with brochures from other universities that had religious studies master's degrees. And I thought, oh, well, you know, Denver would be kind of cool. Um, and I saw that they had a PhD program, which really interested me. Um, I, I know myself really well as a person and it takes me a long time to get comfortable, especially with faculty. So I thought being in a place where I had the opportunity to move from a master's to a PhD relatively fluidly and keep those same faculty relationships and connections would really be super beneficial to me. Um, and it's proved to be the, the best decision that I made um, to stay, to come to Denver, first of all, and get my master's degree here. I was super well supported. And now to stay for my PhD, I've really been able to sort of craft a life here, which feels really um, organic and less sort of studenty in many ways. It feels like I, I, I live here versus sort of just like inhabiting a space, yeah. for um, which is, which is great. And I really love that about the program. And I love that about Denver. And I love that about the, the colleagues and the friends and the relationships I formed here. They feel like people relationships, not so much just like the ones that I sort of had to forge for academic reasons. Nice. Um, so I've had about 150 of these conversations in the last two and a half years of doing this show, and I can only really recall about one medievalist. That's Robbie Gregory from the University of Missouri. I talked to her a long time ago. Um, and you are you just described earlier that you're sort of like interested in medieval Judaism, correct? Yeah. Can you just kind of like say what your like research agenda, like, and what are you hoping to accomplish within your program, like as you move through the, through the comps and into the dissertation? Yeah. So I, I tend to place myself in the camp of extreme interdisciplinarity because that seems to really work well. Um, I, I really work embedded in fields of history and art and religion um, in a variety of varying ways. So 
my current project, um, which is actually quite bigger than it will be in my dissertation, it feels it feels far away enough that I can keep it very big right now. Mm. Um, and the dissertation feels long enough that I can have a big project, even though I know that is not the truth about about the process. <laughs> um, but I really want to examine the ways that we think about and understand visual anti-Judaism and visual anti-Semitism. We have a lot of scholarship on anti-Judaism. We have a lot of scholarship on anti-Semitism. We have great people writing right now, like David Nirenberg and Deborah Lipstad, who are doing just phenomenal work on these historical fields that have been left untouched in many ways and, and, and forgotten about. I think we had a lot of early work, um, a lot of early groundwork on that, but it's really been sort of resurged and it's, it's so fruitful and it's so useful and really necessary. But I, I know myself as a person and I, I'm a very visual person. I um, really love to look at art and to learn from art and, and know what the art has to say to me. Um, and I think that sort of being able to do this work, um, being able to do medieval art in many ways is super fascinating. I don't, we tend to not think of it so much as, you know, the same sort of having the same sort of beauty as maybe we think about art now, or the same sort of beauty as we think about the great impressionists or, um, the great abstract artists, but it's, it's rich and it is, um, narrative and it tells stories in ways that I think are so vitally important. And so I'm really interested in doing a lot of um, public facing scholarship um, and educating the public about different types of and forms of visual stereotyping and how sort of by talking about these different forms of visual misidentification of Jews and Judaism whether that be through sort of anti-Judaic tropes or um, anti-Semitic tropes, which are, are a little more modern, we can really arm the public with tools to combat these visual stereotypes that are showing up and popping up and even like our newspapers um, and, and being able to understand that. But it is interesting um, that I really love sort of this side of wh what do we do with it now? But I am really interested in sort of like the groundwork of medieval Europe and um, medieval versions of art, especially Christian produced art, because it is some of the most just interesting and beautifully sometimes haunted work that I think we, we don't see as much anymore. And it really can tell us a lot about what was happening and what people were imagining to be happening. Interesting. Well, and something you just said about having a public-facing scholarly uh, field is something that I'm really kind of latching on to right now. And we only really started interacting recently. And so the other day, I was doing some work and I poked into Twitter and I saw a fantastic Twitter thread that got started by um, a scholar named R. Gordon. And so, and then I started seeing a bunch of my podcast friends like Chris Jones and Philip Amik and Benji Rolski and everybody started popping up all in this one thread. And a comment from you jumped out. And in the thread you wrote, we all need to do better about not just doing it, but also making it available to others. Most of the time, a lot of public scholarship has constraints via access, ability to engage. 
So we just need to broadcast better. So I love, I love that because it says that you want to talk to everybody, not just people who might wind up in your classrooms, in your university courses someday. Uh, can you tell me what ideal role you would like to see scholars of religion in particular taking in our society right now? Yeah. Um, so that was, I, sim- I had a similar uh, interaction with the Twitter thread. I sort of popped on just doing my sort of normal social media chat and really thought to myself, oh, Madison, you do not have time <laughs> to get involved in a Twitter thread this yeah, morning. You have, to do, you have a meeting this morning. Um, and I'm so glad I did because it was such a wonderful, fruitful conversation um, that we really would have only had access to through something like Twitter because all of these scholars are, are everywhere. Rebecca Gordon, um, who is actually an old classmate of mine um, from the University of Denver, she's in Florida. Philippa Meek is in um, the UK. So, I mean, we're just so spread out, but we're able to use this platform as a way to really promote um, scholarship and talk about differences in the field. Um, but in terms of the role of scholars of religion, um, I, I just really think that we have an opportunity to do something really great for people, not just our students, not just other faculty, and not just the people who even come across our, our campuses. We, we know so much about people and culture and historical precedents. Um, religion scholars don't just do religion. They really do everything. You get trained in so much just by existing in this field. Um, I mean, the piece we're talking about today, Krampus, I did do a lot of work in, in folklore studies and in um, Germanic history and in European history, stuff that I don't normally deal with, but I've learned how to navigate those boundaries by being in the field of religion and of religion studies. And I think confining ourselves to the academy, while it's great because we are teaching you know, the future in many ways, I do think there are spaces and places for us to really go out into the community and, and speak the truth, speak the truths that we know and teach people about, about things that maybe have been recurring themes in their lives already that they weren't able to pinpoint or didn't have the tools to necessarily navigate. And we can really do a good job of teaching them, not necessarily even things. I think we can be teachers of tools and teachers of, of ways of knowing and teachers of ways of thinking. And I think that's really what religious studies affords scholars is we learn how to how to think and do and research and exist in a society of difference um and so i'm really passionate about public scholarship for that reason because as much as i love being in front of a classroom and as much as i love teaching and educating people um i also know that 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 leads a that that's a small pool of people um financial access um access of burden, access of internet, these are all things that prohibit people from, from learning from us. So the more that we can move out into the community, I think the more that we can really start to open ourselves up to people and not necessarily just um, other, other academics. And, and it's, it's a very lofty goal and I recognize that because mm. we're so 
we're still working in the confines of an academy that privies tenure track, that privies peer review, that privies the, the book, which are all things we sort of talked about on this Twitter thread, right? How do we navigate public scholarship when it really doesn't count yet? Mm. And, and I think that's something that, that's sort of what I was, what I was advocating for in, in, the, in the tweet that you quoted was, yeah, we can do public scholarship, but we need, we need more people to make it available in order for people to do it. And, and you're doing a wonderful job with this podcast. And I think if more, more scholars really looked into avenues of how we can promote um, scholarship that's more accessible, you know, just open access on the internet or on Twitter or on Facebook or even, you know, in Facebook groups, moderating Facebook groups or something like that, I think we could really be a good service to the community. Um, and really teach people about a lot of stuff that maybe they didn't even know they wanted to learn. Right. I, I, I have sort of a, a love, I I have a love of public scholarship and I also have a love of the Academy because I spent, I've spent the last 10 years of my life in it. And I can't, I can't imagine myself removed from that because, because of what I've learned, what I've gained from being embedded in an academic community and those and those networks of people that are so readily accessible. But at the same time, I recognize that I can only say so much for so long before it becomes redundant in the communities that I'm currently working in. And moving outside of those spaces is really gonna be a fruitful place, not only for my scholarship, but it's gonna be a fruitful place for the discipline and a fruitful place for the humanities as a whole. I'm obviously relatively impassioned about it. So I'll sort of, I'll sort of cut myself. (laughs) Do you know, uh, so side, side point, do you know the, uh, the podcast, the history of philosophy without any gaps? I do. I have it as one of, one of my podcast to do's. So like that podcast, so the, the, uh, the, the man who writes it and produces it, his name is Peter Adamson. He's a professor at Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, in Germany. And he started that podcast when he was working at King's College in London. And King's College sponsored the podcast because he turns his like podcast episodes into book chapters in a book series that he's doing for Oxford University Press. But there is like an incentive and exposure that can come with doing podcasts and projects like this that are public facing that universities can get a lot out of, get a lot of exposure out of. Because I know the last time I talked to Peter, he said that his podcasts have been downloaded like over 20 million times. Oh. Yeah. And it's about, he does episodes on like Ahimsa and the Buddha and like African philosophy and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, so these public facing scholarships, like these university departments should be doing these because you never know if it's just going to blow up like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I think there's so many ways that we can really utilize these resources. I mean, Social media is a super wonderful place to do good work in many ways. Um, but I think it really is going to sort of be a change of tides moment of, of people recognizing maybe what the university system is going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years and adjusting preemptively 
versus trying to catch up after it's already changed. Mm, And I am excited and ready to see what happens, but I'm also surprisingly hopeful. I'm hopeful that we will do a good job of looking preemptively to think what is going to accommodate our future generations of students and and things like podcasts and public scholarship, um, accessible articles even that don't maybe have the, the, the constraints and the confines of um, access or even, even moving into things that are maybe more certificate based versus degree based. And that itself is going to come with different, different financial constraints um, and faculty maybe adjusting the way that they assign, assign work because maybe the students don't have access to, to X, Y, or Z. And, and it, and it's, and it feels something that, that seems really distant right now to me because I am still sort of in, in PhD mode that feels very article peer review book based. Mm -hmm. But I do, I want to remain, and I think I will as hopeful as possible that this really is going to be something that's an important part of the future of scholarship. Um, and sort of what you were, what you were saying that universities really will be able to capitalize on this in a way that maybe we just haven't, we just haven't gotten to yet. And yeah, I, I think that that's going to be really important um, moving forward is not just what are we doing to make it more public facing, but how is it actually going to be used after that? Yeah, I agree. Um, so you just mentioned writing for uh, venues that are easy to access, uh, digestible pieces that anybody can get a lot out of. And I want to talk about one of those uh, that you have written. And you wrote a piece recently in a magazine called Sacred Matters. And you wrote an article called The Devils in the Details, The Krampus Conundrum about Krampus, a topic which I have never discussed on the show. So I'm really excited. But first, how did you get into get involved with Sacred Matters magazine? Um, I have this wonderful and sometimes odd habit of, of writing things or writing outlines and then sending cold emails to people about (laughs) them. Yes. So I, I think the first piece I wrote for Sacred Matters was on, um, a woman named Andrea Sanders and she was part of uh, the B zero movement in Boulder, which is just, which is a movement that really advocates for low waste, low consumerism and, um, reusable, reusable goods. She's really getting after not even so much buying use, but like, how can we actually just limit the amount that we purchase and that we consume as people because we do over consume in so many ways. But I, um, my, my sister is involved in that movement in her hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I got really interested in it when she sort of moved into this role as ambassador and, and, you know, thought to myself, wow, there's a really good opportunity here to write something about intersections of sacrality and earthliness and the movement towards a better better planet, better world, which is also sort of a big undercurrent in a lot of religions right now, the conversation about whose responsibility it is to do sort of environmental activism. So 
I sent a cold email to Andrea and asked if I could interview her in this very similar way and sent a cold email to Dr. Gary Laterman at um, Emory and similarly said, hey, I'm really thinking about doing this. I read some pieces on your website. They look fascinating and wonderful and I'm really interested in moving into the realm of public scholarship. Are you interested? And he was really supportive of it and gave me really great feedback about that first piece, especially sort of, it was something I hadn't done before, how to write public scholarship. So they gave me a lot of feedback about, you know, what it means to maybe not name drop as much as we're used to in, in academia, you know, using sort of like the, the quintessential theorists in your paper and doing a bunch of scattered name dropping and what it means to make it more accessible and familiar to the readers. And I was just so grateful for that opportunity and then sort of kept having these, these moments of, wow, that's a great thing I really want to write about, but I don't know if that's necessarily something that I want to invest a lot of like peer review, emotional energy into, um, a lot of emotional writing energy into, and just a lot of time in terms of the time it takes to draft and submit and revise and hear from a peer review process to maybe or maybe not have it turn into something fruitful. And I found that Sacred Matters gave me a lot of space to explore things that maybe were out of my wheelhouse. Um, I wrote a piece on um, tailgating as sort of like a ritual activity. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, and I wrote another piece on uh, a brewery in Pittsburgh that used to be a church. Both two things are not at all related to medieval Judaism and in any particular way, but they're both really interesting to me and both things that I thought would be fun to explore, especially because I grew up in a place that was really tailgating heavy. So I spent a lot of time around tailgate culture and thought it was just fascinating. Mm -hmm. And the brewery in Pittsburgh, I just love. I mean, you know, I mean, I have no connection to it besides that I've been several times when I visited Pittsburgh and um, Sacred Matters, I think, is is doing a really great job of writing pieces and allowing um, people to write pieces that are meaningful and thought provoking while also being really accessible to people that aren't maybe in that field. Or maybe you're just really interested in why someone would even think they needed to write something about tailgating and ritual culture. Like what, what even provoked me to do that? And, and that in and of itself is going to sort of prompt people to ask other questions about, oh, you know, is this religious? Is this religious? Can this be a religious experience? And, and while we don't want to over-religify everything, um, I think it's really helpful to get people questioning and wondering about what it means to have religion intersect in so many ways. And I think Sacred Matters offers people a really wonderful place to do that um, and to discuss things that maybe don't need to be peer reviewed in terms of sort of the, the rigidity of the whole thing. Um, because I respect and I love the peer review process for what it is and for what it does and how it makes us better. But I also love the format of digital scholarship that's accessible 
and interesting and thought provoking and also short, short enough that my, my high school friends want to read it short enough that my grandparents want to read it short enough that my friends from the gym want to read it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and here's another idea too. Um, if you ever come to the East Coast and you are near Pittsburgh, you should take a detour and come up to Buffalo during football season because the notorious Bills Mafia is some of the most epic tailgating you could ever imagine. And it would be very, very intriguing to see an article about the Bills Mafia in Sacred Matters magazine. And you could stay at my house for free. <laughs> My, I have, my partner has mentioned that to me a few times that I would just, and we've watched a couple Bill's Mafia's, you know, little docu-series on YouTube, and I am just utterly taken by them, and I do have, I do have a draft in my writing file called Bill's Mafia, so I'm, I'm close. Oh, Um, that's amazing. I'm so glad. Buffalo would love you forever. Yeah, I'm close. I'm just trying to sort of navigate the waters of um, what what that looks like in terms of sort of the, the questions that I might ask um, myself to think about. I don't yeah. think I've really wrestled with that yet. Like, what, what does it look like to explore this with sort of my religious goggles on? Um, because I'm still, I'm still not, not deep enough in that particular tailgate movement, I should call it, versus just an activity, <laughs> yeah. um, to know even the right questions to think about because it's so ritual and it's so regimented and it's so regular and it's audience-based and participatory, but also it's spectator and active. It has these like, so it has so many moving parts to it that I just, um, I'm excited to think about it. Um, I just haven't quite quite made the jump to decide that that's what I want to put um, energy into at the moment. But I do have a draft saved in my writing file, ready to go for it. And I will definitely tell you when I need to come experience and do some on-site, on-the-ground research. Excellent. Okay, so um, I want to talk to you today as well about Krampus. And the article that I read of yours yesterday called The Devil in the Details, The Krampus Conundrum, is about this character of Krampus. And I've never talked about this on the show before, so I'm going to be learning a whole bunch from you right now, which I'm excited about. I love learning new things from all guests. So who is Krampus and why do you care about this character like within the scope of your research? So Krampus and I have a funny little journey. Um, I, so my side, my side hobby besides being a scholar and a writer is that I'm a swim coach. And if anyone knows anything about swimming, it's, I do swim meets take forever. Yeah. It's the worst. Yes. They never end. Um, they seem to almost never start. So my co-coaches and I tend to spend a lot of time either, you know, chatting with each other. I have a couple of co-coaches who are also um, in programs at the University of Denver. So we tend to bring work with us. And I have this like wonderful staff where we have two artists, two professional artists on staff as um, coaches. So one of, one of my co-coaches is a Denver-based artist named Elliot Lang. 
And he, you know, usually brings a sketch pad with them to swim meets because again, they take forever and you Mm -hmm. need something to entertain yourself. So, and it was, I think it was a, a November meet. It was called our Turkey Trot. So it was just right before the Christmas season. Um, or, you know, if you're in any sort of home goods store, the Christmas season had long started. And Elliot was sort of drawing this little figure and I wasn't, wasn't totally sure what he was doing. And I sort of was like peeking over every now and again, cause I was like, Ooh, that's an interesting hooked nose. Oh, that's, those are really interesting horns. That's a really interesting goatee. So finally I sort of jokingly leaned over and said, Elliot, what are you drawing? Like, it looks like it looks a little anti-Semitic. So, and I kind of had this like punchy conversation with him and he, he obviously knew I, I didn't mean anything by it, but he, he told me, he was like, Oh, well, Madison, this is Krampus. Do you know anything about him? And I said, no, I've never, never heard of this person being before. And he sort of thankfully explained this to me and told me the story of Krampus and Krampus is this sort of European mythological anti-Santa is sort of the fun way to describe him. And I sort of was really taken just by the way that he was drawing him and the certain features that Krampus was, was given. And I knew it was all based on things he'd seen before and stories he'd been told because he heard about Krampus growing up from his family. So I was really interested in doing a deep dive into this character because he teaches us a lot about these types of physical stereotypes and how deeply they are entrenched and how deeply they run. And I wasn't necessarily concerned that Krampus was a particular type of anti-Semitic figure or particularly anti-Judaic, but I was fascinated that this ulterior Santa, this sort of like anti-Christmas, was being imagined with these features that were so often associated with Jews as means of discrimination or as means of um, hate or vilification. And, and some of these features at, at some points in time at, at certain, in certain geographical regions were also applied to other groups that Christians didn't like. So they weren't always necessarily confined to Jews. Some of these sort of like grotesque features or the way that maybe they were illustrated. But I was really taken by the way that that Krampus stood as sort of like anti-something or opposite of something and how the features that he was given were very similar to features that we gave to Jews who were visually, um, especially in sort of the medieval middle age period that I look at, were thought of to be like the not Christians. So in many ways, posing Jews as opposite to Christian or posing Krampus as opposite to Santa really sort of sparked this, this visual journey, I guess I should say that I sort of took myself on in researching for this piece. Um, and I ended up like speed writing it because I just was so taken by it and so fascinated by the artwork that I could find of, of Jews and of Krampus and the way that Krampus sort of sh- pops in and out of, of history in many ways, which I just think is super fascinating. 
Do you know how Krampus came to be a part of Christian Christmas storytelling in Europe? So Krampus is sort of, to give a visual description, this half goat, demon, devil, beast, monstrosity, right? He's like all of the things that we think about when we think about something sort of like grotesque and ugly and, and what have you. So he was born out of European folklore and Krampus, he has his, his rec, a recognized night and it's actually the evening before the feast of St. Nicholas, which is December 6th. And he, the, the legend of Krampus is sort of that if children didn't behave well, Krampus would um, punish you the night before the feast of St. Nicholas, or he would kidnap you. So it sort of was preemptive punishment for any children who weren't, hadn't behaved well prior to the feast of St. Nicholas. And when this, when the kids, um, and sort of the first, the first version of like the Santa narrative, when they would, you know, leave their shoes out and, um, you know, wait for St. Nicholas, he was sort of like the precursor to that of like, if you haven't behaved, I'll just take you. Mm. And then you won't really get to enjoy, um, this holiday necessarily. Um, and the legend of Krampus is, is an old Germany Christian tradition as a, like I said, this sort of counterpart to St. Nicholas. And I think it's interesting that he sort of is like, whatever, whenever Santa brings things, Santa brings presents, Krampus takes kids. So it's sort of this funny interplay of if you aren't behaving well, you are taken. If you are behaving well, you receive gifts. And sort of what I, what I just mentioned was um, he has sort of taken on this role of like the thing that's counter to the majority. And, and one of those sort of instances, just a little briefly, is that during World War II, he was actually considered to be a creation of the Social Democrats. And oh. now he's become this really big, fascinating figure with secular young people who are sort of trying to navigate new holiday traditions um, and I mean, just this year in Denver, we had two or three breweries that had a meet Krampus night where you could bring your dog and your kid could sit on Krampus's lap. And Amazing. Could, yeah. And you could get a Polaroid picture taken. So he's sort of the way that I imagine it and the way that he's sort of moved through Christian imagination is this sort of like figural association of the thing we're trying to maybe move away from. And I think it's one of the reasons that I find him really compelling in as, as part of maybe this canon of medieval art um, is because Trish, Christians were trying to really visually differentiate themselves from Jews. And Krampus is sort of representative of this thing that we, you know, want to distance ourselves away from, or he is standing as that he is the allegory of, of the way that we're going to create that distance. I noticed that Krampus has horns on his head in the depictions that you included in your piece. How does the how do the horns fit into the you know the stereotypical imagery that Krampus is associated with? The the horns have this really interesting history in medieval art. I'll sort of start start from there, um, and they actually come from a passage in Exodus where Moses's face was described as horned, but what we've noticed over time and what we've sort of been able to really gather from that passage is that it really was meant to describe like a sort of luminance or radiance, but 
over time, these sort of like small little, they look almost like little pegs, but, but Moses tended to be sort of this horned figure, but not in sort of a malicious way, in sort of a, a way of, of recognition. And one of, one of the scholars who works on, on this a lot is, is Ruth Mellenkoff. And she's actually the author of a book called The Horned Moses in Medieval Art and Thought. And she really puts forward that these horns were never meant to be associated with the devil, but they still did develop into a marker of anti-Jewish sentiment in the early modern medieval period. Um, and there were many points in, um, in medieval thought and many, many points in medieval Europe where Jewish affiliation was also marked by them being in hell or them being with the devil or with a demon on his shoulder, sort of these beastly grotesque features, um, and even depicting Jews with tail and horns and a goatee. Um, and over time, this thing that, that started very sort of like innocently became a marker of anti-Judaic sentiment and and that sort of really sparked my interest because of one of the pieces that I, one of the visual pieces that I used in this, this post for Sacred Matters was a, a piece of Simon of Trent, who's a, a particular figure um, in the, the, blood, the blood libel, ritual murder folklore genre, and a picture of him with a bunch of Jewish figures who are like, strangely looking just like uh, some Krampus figures that I saw with the goatee and sort of the, the hooven feet um, and, and little horns and these devilish smirks. Um, and so I think over time, the way that we've used horns has really been to associate Jews with the devil, which again, fascinated me with this Krampus figure because it put them in association with the thing that wasn't Christian. The, the devil himself is not part of the Christian message you don't want to be associated with the devil if you're if you're a, a faithful person so by sort of camping camping anti-judaic visual iconography and visual identifiers with a devilish figure makes them particularly non-christian which is sort of what krampus is representing he is this particular version of the not santa he's not jolly he's not rotund he's usually very red um, and malicious. Um, he looks like the thing that you really don't want coming into your house and stealing your kids. If Santa took your kids, you might be okay with that. But if Krampus came and kidnapped your kids, I think maybe you'd, you'd put up a fight. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm always curious about when I talk to people on the show is their, their research methods and how they go about finding resources. And I'm curious about what sorts of historical artifacts you are gathering to trace these depictions of Krampus over time? Like, where have you found stuff? What are some interesting things that you found? Like, what eras are we talking about here for the artwork that you're actually discovering? Tell me about your, your research digging. I, I ended up, for this particular piece, looking a little bit, a little bit more modern than is my usual, my usual bend, but the the main piece that really drew me in was a 15th century piece of Simon of Trent, who was a young child, um, was found deceased in the town of Trent. Um, the body was found by a Jewish man and sort of 
the 15th century in Europe was really this height of anti-Judaic and anti-Semitic hate. And the bishop of the time declared the entire Jewish population guilty for this young boy's murder. And so I, there've been a lot of visual representations of Simon of Trent. And I was really interested in sort of exploring what all of those look like, because there are many that do include this sort of devilish midsection where the Jews are, are sort of imagined as these devilish creatures, like I was talking about. And Simon is sort of this like saintly figure that's sort of risen above. So that's sort of, that was sort of where I started was this 15th century piece. And then I really sort of moved into um, a few later pieces. I think a couple were 20th century um, postcards. I looked at um, a couple like modern pieces to see what, what modern depictions of Krampus looked like, if they'd really changed at all, or if they'd evolved in any particular way. But um, I think my, my research with Krampus has, has sort of snowballed into, or it did snowball into research on this particular case of, of blood libel, which was really fun to have a piece of public scholarship, something that I sort of just wrote as this exciting journey, become something that was, was really part of my research canon and part of a visual canon that I really needed to sort of accrue through my dissertation process. Gotcha. So you've done a really good job of like describing how Krampus looks and I would encourage any listeners out there to go and find these images as well. They're widely available and easy to find. And I'm curious if you also noticed any changes of depictions of Krampus over time? Like, does his appearance change from century to century up until today, or has he remained like a consistently depicted figure? I, I think it's kind of, I think it kind of depends. Um, I've seen a couple where he, he's a little more mischievous than he is scary necessarily or a little bit more, I don't want to say friendly looking, but approachable is maybe the right word that maybe he's not going to be your best friend, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't mind passing him on the street, despite him being maybe red, that might be a little concerning. Mm -hmm. But um, I also think there's this really fascinating way that, that we use like scare and fear tactics um, especially in America. And I think that there's a, there's been a couple instances where I've seen that his face is relatively shielded and you can see sort of like the whips and chains on him, which he tends to use, um, in a lot of these folklore narratives to like chain kids up or, or whip them into subservience. And, and you can still see those as sort of these recognizable identifiers of Krampus, but his his face or sort of his scary demeanor that we might see from like a European-based artist um, tend to be a little bit more subdued, which I think is really interesting. Um, and and Elliot um, Lang, the artist who actually drew, he drew the final piece in the article specifically for me, which I just was over the moon about that I got like mm -hmm. an artist to draw a piece for me, which was just wonderful. 
um, we kind of joke that it's like sad Krampus. Mm. And we, and, and it was really interesting to see this sort of in conversation with like a contemporary artist doing a depiction of something that he, he had a history and a background in like learning about from his family and, and this like sad forlorn figure, but you know, with these pointed ears and these super long horns and still with this pointed nose and goatee. And I think it's just been really interesting to sort of get to see Krampus evolve. Um, but I don't think it's linear necessarily. I do think that depending on when and how Krampus is needed is how he's depicted in many ways. Um, and, and for what, for what purpose? I think that, um, we have a couple, there's a couple of Netflix shows, I think at least two Netflix movies right now that have a Krampus figure. And it's like a particularly weird depiction. Like it's somewhere between grotesque and horrifying, but not enough that I couldn't watch it with the lights out. And so I think it really depends on what he's needed for and, and sort of what we're calling upon Krampus to be doing in that moment is sort of how he gets depicted. If that makes some sense. Do you do you know what any of those movies are called off the top of your head? I don't. I think there's there's one called Krampus on Netflix. Okay. I think there's two, could be up to three, um, but there is one definitely just called Krampus because I tend to look every season to see if any new ones have been added, um, and see sort of like what the. Um, what the depiction looks like of, of that figure. If he's, if it, if it's changed at all from the other ones or if it looks different and if it looks different are the, where are the movies from in terms of geographical location and production. Um, and, but I know there's, there's more than just what I can find on Netflix. So um, I would, I would love to have a day where I just sit down and watch a bunch of Krampus movies. Nice. You think that, um, that, would maybe not serve me well for sleeping. So, yeah. So, a question that I'm thinking of now is like Krampus's, um, you know, notoriety or lack thereof within the United States. And you mentioned Elliot Lang, the artist who did the piece, who did the art for your piece, and how his family had told him about it. And I never had heard of Krampus. Um, I also did not come from a family that has any German or Austrian heritage. And I'm curious if there are any parts of the U.S. where Krampus is widely discussed or why Krampus didn't catch on in the United States like as much as it did in, as he did in Germany or Austria. So I was, I've been thinking about this question a lot and I, I don't have the best, most probably geographically specific answer, but I do think a lot of Krampus's lack of integration into American culture has, has to do with the fact that, that we really latch onto the Christmas narrative and the Christmas consumerism and adding something in that makes Christmas less exciting wouldn't really bode well for sort of the Christmas market. And, mm. and again, I don't, I don't know if that's, that's particularly correct, but I do know, um, especially what I was saying with those breweries, 
that it's been really interesting to sort of watch this unfold, this sort of like reintroduction to Krampus as this figure that you want to visit and have your picture taken with and like hang out with in a brewery as this really interesting time that we're coming up on, especially with some younger parents and some younger generations, um, the new sort of 20s and 30s and and what they're doing with the Krampus story and even what they're doing with the Christmas story, um, I think is is really interesting. And I also I also think that um it it might just depend on the the family and and what they choose to disseminate as like folklore or tradition. I mean I don't I didn't grow up with any really extra stories about any holidays. There was never sort of like the extra Tarleton story or like the extra um, great grandparent story that was part of a folklore or traditional canon that maybe was passed down to them. So I think part of it too is like what is actually getting passed down and in what ways. And, and it also, I think part of it too is just that Elliot is, is so creative and, and this is what he does that, that Krampus tends to be this very visual sort of visceral figure. And illustrating Krampus is, I think, a different, a different thing than maybe just telling that little tale, you know, around the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of uh, projects can, or do you, what kind of projects are you working on next? Do you have any things that are coming down the pipe that people might look for? I, yes and no. Um, comprehensive exams have really hit me hard. Um, but I do have, um, I'm, I'm working on, like I said, I have the Buffalo Bills thing in my writing folder. Um, and I am trying to flush out, um, a piece on some religious theory that I might get to, that I might propose to sacred matters, like a short piece on religious theory and Jay-Z Smith, um, sort of to put it really shortly just as, as part of like it, maybe an educational, an educational thing about how we talk about categories of religion. But other than that, I don't have anything that I can think of in like the up and coming near future. Um, I am speaking at a retirement home this week, but unless you're in Denver, I don't think you'll, you'll probably get to hear that. So, um, Madison, where can people find you if they want to get in touch, follow your work, etc.? So I am on Twitter at Madison Tarleton, all one word. I am also on Sacred Matters. I do have four pieces on there. So I highly recommend that you guys go check those out. And I'm in the works of getting a website up and started to sort of catalog all of my digital pieces in a better sort of more succinct way. And once that gets up and running, hopefully in the next five days, that's my goal. I put myself on a deadline um, that that will be linked in my Twitter bio. Can I, uh, can I confess something here really quick? Yeah. So right now, your comprehensive exams, this is the period that I got to in a PhD program, and then I chickened out and dropped out right before the comps. So you should keep going because I didn't. So um, good luck with those comprehensive exams. It's, uh, it's a doozy. 
I I think I'm, I'm I'm probably few and far between, but I have just loved it. I really have just loved this process of learning. Um, I don't necessarily love like the deadline part of that or like the maybe the testing out part that I do actually have to pass something. But I I really just love this process of learning and of experiencing the discipline from so many different ways. And I, I keep telling, I've told a couple of my classmates before that as much as I do not love sitting and reading for eight hours, because that's sort of the constraint that I'm on, like with a, te- especially with a 10 week quarter, I can't imagine or can't even fathom another time in my life where my only obligation to my schoolwork is to read books that are interesting and useful and helpful, especially in the the demands of an academic uh, discipline and within the demands of an academic setting. Like all all I have to do is read and I am, I love it. So I am few and far between, I think, but I really am just enjoying this process so much. Amazing. Well, Madison Tarleton, author of The Devils in the Details, The Krampus Conundrum, and other pieces in Sacred Matters magazine, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. I have had a real blast talking to you. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.